Good evening. Goodbye Forever, Volume 2 by Nakchang Rinpoche, Chapter 15, Part 3. I excused myself and went to bed with a sizable smile on my face. Life was nothing if not interesting. The days passed quite delightfully, and the evenings too. Karin was a music teacher and had two grand pianos in a large room dedicated to teaching. One was a Bösendorfer and the other a Steinway. Karin was kind enough to let me tinkle on it. I couldn't play piano, but I had a method of rambling around on the white keys in mixed C and A minor scales in a manner remotely reminiscent of Keith Jarrett unless you'd happen to hear Keith Jarrett. The music room had various guitars and violins hanging on the walls and a cluster of timpani instruments, including a brace of tambourines. That's lovely for someone who doesn't play piano, Karen commented. I think you must play some other instrument because your phrasing is not piano phrasing. I play guitar and harp, I replied. Harp, she queried. Sorry, I meant harmonica. It's just that blues players call them harps. Ah, yes, Karen smiled. I remember John saying something along those lines. That would be a diatonic harmonica rather than a chromatic. Exactly. Well, that's very interesting because John is a great fan of boogie-woogie. She pronounced the vowels as an assonant rhyme with booby and I had to resist the urge to smile. John would like to have you accompany him if you have your instrument with you. That would be a great pleasure. It's been about four years since I played harp with another musician. Karen inquired why that was, and I had to tell the old tale of death and the demise of Savage Cabbage. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. That is so very sad. I am so very sorry. Karen seemed physically moved by my account, and I had to tell her that although it was sad, I'd appreciated the time I had with my friends, and now it was over. Most stalwart, she responded. One could carry such sadness all one's life. Yes, I think I will, I sighed. But I think I'll carry the joy of it at the same time. So maybe, well, I ran out of words. Karen changed the subject. Do any of your fellow students play? I'm sorry to say that I don't know. We've not been a close group up until recently, for reasons a little too complex to go into. I can always ask, though. Please do. It would be lovely to have some musical evenings. I do so love them but so few people learn to play music these days. I live in a house with three ladies who play. They go to the College of Music and Drama. What are their instruments? 
double bass, cello, bassoon and oboe. And I often improvise with them on sitar. Really, how marvellous! How good to know that there is still culture in the world amongst the young. It's a shame you couldn't have brought your sitar with you. I would have loved to have heard that instrument played. I'm um, about as skilled on that as I am on a piano because I've never had lessons. But I love the way it sounds and it seems to work very well with strings and woodwinds. I used to play guitar and in Savage Cabbage I played electric bass. Really? Well, as you can see, there are some guitars here. Why not take a look at them? Certainly, I would be delighted. I walked over to the wall where they hung. There were three of them, but they were all nylon strung. They look very fine, I said, but I'm no judge of Spanish and classical guitars. I've only ever played steel strung guitars. Are they so very different? Yes and no. They're tuned the same and you can play anything on anything. It's just how it sounds. Spanish and classical sound best with that style of music, but blues need steel string, especially for strumming. I bought a cheap and nasty Spanish guitar when I was 15 and converted it into some sort of resophonic guitar. Resophonic? Yes, it's a system of mechanical or acoustic amplification that was invented by John Dopperer back in the 1920s in America. If John knows about blues, he'll probably have heard of him. How intriguing! So how did you accomplish the conversion? Well, at the time I knew nothing of the resophonic cone, which is like an aluminium speaker cone, and so I just filled it with ferrotype diaphragms from World War II field telephones. Of course, it sounded nothing like a national resophonic guitar, but it worked well enough for me. I played it lap slide style, which worked well because the neck was so bowed that it was unplayable any other way. Was it the steel strings that bowed the neck? No, it was badly bowed when I got it and I screwed a brass brace from the heel of the neck up to about halfway down the neck to stop it getting worse. The steel strings weren't too much of a problem anyway because I started with a fifth string gauge and used a banjo string for the first string. Then I played it tuned in open E or open A tuning and tuned it lower than standard to suit my voice. An inventor, I see, Karen exclaimed. I loved the way she was so enthusiastic about everything. I could see her being an excellent music teacher. Well, maybe it does interest me a great deal and I like to work on ideas like this. My other guitar that I played in regular tuning was a 12-string. Ah, I see. So these guitars here will not hold much interest for you. Oh, I replied a little sheepishly, I don't know about that. I'd certainly have a try. 
Just don't expect much of me. No, 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 please, you mustn't dissemble. A musician is fully entitled to his preferred instrument. There are some pianists who would abjure my Bösendorfer, but to me it is magnificent and I prefer it by far to the Steinway. That is most understanding of you. Not at all, and if you think it will not bow the neck, you're most welcome to restring that one. There, she pointed to the guitar at the end, with light-gauge metal strings for the time you are here. On the condition that you give us a performance of lap. Lap. Delta Blues lap slide. Ah, yes, that will be of great interest to John. I took the guitar down from the wall and looked at it more closely. This is actually a steel string guitar. That's interesting. How can you tell? Well, the neck is narrower than a Spanish or classical and it has a truss rod. You see this little cover plate here just above the nut? Well, that covers an adjustment for the truss rod that goes down the centre of the neck. That's to stop the neck bowing and also to adjust the action. I can see that someone has taken the action up quite high, but that's understandable if you wanted to put nylon strings on it. You could adjust it back to steel strings if you like. I wouldn't need to do that, Karen, I grinned. It's perfect for me as it is, because I need a high action for lap slide and... I see someone's inserted a higher nut too, even better. You obviously know a lot about guitars. Not as much as my old friend Stephen Ron, especially Ron. Ron could look at any guitar and tell you whether it was good or not, or whether it needed adjustment. He could also tell if it had been played a lot or not. He said that instruments have to learn how to be instruments by being played. That the more they vibrated, the more the molecules of the wood aligned in a way that made it more natural for them to produce the sounds they made. He said it was even true of electric guitars. That's obviously why a Stradivarius is so valuable. Yes, it would seem that Within reason, the older the better. I suppose that warping will spoil an instrument, but unless something like that happens, an instrument will just keep improving, like these pianos. Yes, indeed, they have a beautiful sound, don't they? Although I can't remember what they sounded like years ago. They were not new when we bought them, and they must date back to the 1930s. Can I ask you, going back to the guitars, why do you need the strings to be set higher from the fretboard for nylon strings? Karen asked with delighted curiosity. Because nylon strings have a different vibration pattern. They oscillate far more than steel strings and if the action is too low, the strings buzz on the frets. This means that with steel strings, this guitar will be absolutely ideal for what I play. All I need now is a slide. I was grinning like a fiend. 
I then described the slide and said I'd made my last one from a length of towel rail. Karen told me she'd inquire of John as he had a whole workshop full of odds and ends. Sure enough, there was a length of old towel rail. It was rusty in parts, but cleaned up well enough. And so it was that I inquired of the illustration ladies as to when, whether any of them played. I was delighted to find two pianists, Janet Coleridge and Sylvia Winstanley Greaves. <clears throat> there were two guitarists, Amanda Riley and Gloria Meithelmroyd. There was a violinist, Pamela Beauchamp, and a flautist, Stephanie Lytton Chatfield. Fortunately, the violinist and the flautist had brought their instruments. All the ladies were quite capable of improvising in blues scale. The final evening was thus an eruption of New Orleans in the heart of Dorset. The blues numbers seemed to be enjoyed by all, and the ladies, my illustration confederates, seemed astonished that they had never known I was a musician of sorts. <clears throat> it's not that I've kept it a secret, but I've never really felt that offering autobiographical anecdotes would be enjoyable to anyone. Yes, Pamela sighed. I can understand that. Todd and Veranda told us all that you were a show-off, and that's not an atmosphere where you'd feel like saying anything about anything. I don't blame you for not saying anything. You must have picked up on what they were saying, I suppose. Yes, I overheard that comment, and others like it, quite often, when they thought I was out of earshot. We can understand now why you were so quiet, commented Stephanie. Yes, it seemed best to say as little as possible, I replied. The problem was, though, said Sylvia, with your being almost withdrawn, that it made you seem aloof and that, well, it had the effect of... I can well understand that, I smiled ever so slightly. I wish I'd found some other way of dealing with it. When the ladies realised what had happened and how they'd been set up, they expressed a great deal of resentment about it. I'm astonished you were never angry with them, opined Pamela, apart from your occasional witty comebacks, that is. It was actually those comebacks that I regret. I don't like to use wit as a weapon. They all wanted to know why. It's too easy. It gives me an unfair advantage and I don't like to use anything as a weapon. I don't like to combat people or engage in verbal duels. I don't like the whole winning and losing business. The problem is that I tend to resort to wit at times of frustration and mainly as a means of terminating a pointless exchange. But it was always very funny when you did that and would have been much funnier if we'd all known you better. We'd have been completely on your side. I thought about it for a moment before replying. That would be most welcome in so many ways. I have no enthusiasm for being embattled and no enthusiasm for defending myself. 
I'm not angry with Todd and Veranda because they simply are as they are and have the attitudes they have. It's merely part of their upbringing and they have attitudes they've never questioned. I think there's something that's simply threatening about me being evidently working class and evidently fairly literate. You've obviously thought about this quite a lot. Or has this come up before? asked Janet. Well, I have had other experiences in my life where the combination of a working class origin and an uncommonly extensive vocabulary have caused people irritation. I found that my vocabulary tended to either intimidate or humiliate those who felt inadequate in response to it. That happened with Jack Hackman's parents. They really disliked me. I never tried to impress people with my vocabulary. I never deliberately use polysyllabic, unusual or partially archaic words. It's not easy to know which words are not in common usage when those words seem normal enough in my own mind. I'd been used to my father's extensive vocabulary and that has probably created an unrealistic sense in me of how it was possible to communicate. When you're reared by a father who makes a deliberate practice of learning as many words as feasible, it's not possible not to be influenced by it. Why did your father do that? asked Janet. Well, he never explained and I just assumed that this was one of the efforts one made if one wished to evolve into a worthwhile human being. He was a self-made man, so it made sense in that context. He started out working in the docks and decided to join the army to better himself. He then launched himself into the educational opportunities the army offered and eventually gained engineering and building qualifications. He then rose to be a major where he discovered he was socially out of his depth. So I suppose he set about educating himself in terms of culture and part of his method was to learn a word a week and use it in conversation as many times as seemed practical. It was a habit he maintained and still maintains, even though he's retired. That explains a lot about you, laughed Pamela. It sounds almost like something out of a Charles Dickens novel. That would fit. My father loves Charles Dickens. He reads everything he ever wrote to my, he read everything he ever wrote to my mother to help her with her English. My mother's German, you see. Her vocabulary wasn't extensive, but she was a treasury of knowledge in terms of the arts, especially music. She used to sing Schubert songs with her mother accompanying on piano. That explains even more about you, said Pamela. And I suppose you must have enjoyed all that and loved language. Yes, I've always enjoyed words and linguistics. Maybe all the more because I'm hopeless at anything connected with numbers. Arithmetic, let alone mathematics, was entirely beyond me. I can only just count my change in a shop. So I'm more or less doomed to be regarded as either 
pretentious, ostentatious, conceited, overconfident, pompous, affected, supercilious, patronising, vain, self-important, self-enamoured, narcissistic, arrogant, bumptious, grandiose or grandiloquent. That had them all in hysterics laughing. You can just roll synonyms off as if you were reading them from the page, laughed Sylvia. Yes, but that's often annoyed people. So now I only do it to be amusing with people I think might enjoy it. Don't worry about us on that score. We enjoy it even if it irritates Todd and Veranda. No need to bother about them. Thank you, but I wouldn't like to bother. Peeve, irk, gall, annoy, vex, rile, aggravate, exasperate, incense, enrage or infuriate Todd and Veranda, albeit with your kindly support. That would be mean-spirited of me, dare I say unpleasant, resentful, implausible, spiteful, malicious, vindictive, malevolent, vicious, vengeful and rancorous. The ladies were now in tears of laughter. Where do you get all these words? Janet inquired when she found herself able to speak. When I was young, I used to browse the thesaurus just for fun. My when I was young phrase brought Lewis Carroll to mind and I launched into a parody. In my youth, Vic Simerson replied to Janet, I feared it might injure the brain, but now that I'm perfectly sure I have none, why, I do it again and again. Gales of laughter ensued, after which Pamela said, I've always enjoyed your old Father William. Lewis Carroll's a big favourite with me, but it's like you should be on stage or something. I was once. As a comedian... Pamela inquired in astonishment. Maybe in part, but no, I was the vocalist of the Savage Cabbage Blues Band and I used to enjoy throwing out manic lines at the audience when I was introducing the members of the band. It became some sort of signature role and people came to expect it of me. But browsing a thesaurus for fun is wild, Janet remarked. Well, one thing leads to another, as it were. I had an etymological dictionary too and used to enjoy finding out the origin of words. The fact that the word scorned was derived from the Nordic term for lack of horns was something I found fascinating. But word derivations seemed irritating to some people. It was unnecessary extraneous information. The ladies said they were both saddened and annoyed that I had not had any actual company for two years due to Todd and Veranda, because according to them I was highly entertaining and interesting. I thanked them kindly for their good opinion and said that I'd try to be more myself within bounds back in Bristol. We all were enjoying each other's company and they were free to ask me whatever they liked about the Savage Cabbage Blues Band and anything else about which they cared to inquire. 
The end of the evening turned into some kind of interview, peppered with a great deal of laughter. I even spoke a little of my time in the Himalayas, as Todd and Veranda had told them I belonged to an Eastern religious cult. I had to start by defining the word cult. Todd and Veranda are correct according to the original meaning of the word cult. It means a system of religious practice connected with a deity or deities. The modern meaning of quasi-religious organisation which uses devious psychological techniques to gain control of adherence doesn't apply to world religions such as Buddhism, Sikhism, Judaism, Christianity or Islam. Although it might apply if individuals within a world religion set up their own insular organisations. That can happen in any religion. However, Todd and Veranda know nothing at all about Himalayan Buddhism or the Nyingma tradition. Books are quite rare and they haven't inquired, with me at least. The only person in the art school who knows anything about me in that sense is Derek and I doubt whether they have asked him. All they know, therefore, is that I'm a Buddhist and that is as vague as saying I'm a Christian. A Christian could be a Roman Catholic or a member of one of a wide range of Protestant churches, Anglican, Methodist, Wesleyan, Baptist, Pentecostal, Quaker, Lutheran, Calvinist, Seventh-day Adventist, Jehovah's Witness, Mormon. The list is vast and even from the little I know there are substantial differences between them. We talked till quite late. I tried to keep my explanations as simple as possible, but they pressed me for ever-deepening levels of information. I obliged, and they all thanked me for answering their questions. On retiring to bed, I reflected on what had occurred. It seemed that it was possible to rely on the fact that people would eventually come to their own conclusions about me. It seemed that I had taken more or less the right approach in terms of simply not defending myself. It only seemed a pity that I'd inadvertently colluded with Todd and Veranda in depriving the ladies on the illustration year of my company. I felt that this was something I could tell Kyabje Dujang Rimshe in terms of having had some success, albeit mixed at living as a nakpa in the West.